Hi, and welcome to NARC Troopers. Today we're going to talk about the Jezebel spirit and demonic influence in narcissists and psychopaths. So, not all people with personality disorders have these dark passengers, but many of them do, I think. And I don't think I'm coming up with this just because I've been binge-watching episodes of Dexter. Um, yeah, I really get that show in ways I can't even tell you. But, uh, no, this is something else. Um, it's common knowledge that the brain of a person with antisocial personality disorders like narcissism, sociopathy, and psychopathy this brain is different from the neurotypical healthy person's brain. Researchers have even used MRIs to scan the brains of individuals who suffer from narcissistic personality disorder, and they have concluded that these people have less gray matter in a part of their cerebral cortex called the left anterior insula. They also have structural, structural abnormalities in a region of the brain that has been linked to empathy. It is clear that other parts of the brain do not function correctly either, and this involves the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. So let's talk about something less scientific, because that's science. Now we're going to talk about, I guess, religion is what category this falls into, and you know those things don't always go hand in hand or, or complement each other very well. So let's talk about the word evil. Um, as the esteemed philosopher St. Augustine posited centuries ago, um, it's not a positive quality or a substance, but a privation or poverty of the soul, much akin to corruption of being, a corruption of being. That's what St. Augustine said. I love his um, Tears of Monica, I think, is like his mother. He, It's just, I love St. Augustine, but we'll talk about that another day. Um, Aristotle, he wrote that the good, or that, just the concept of good, it means all things. It's just, it's the thing that all people desire. And this, despite appearances, is congruent with the notion that good is fullness of being. It's also safe to say that all things desire to be and to be most fully. So are y'all with me? <laughs> with this being said, Good and being would be the same thing, sort of like a syllogism, I guess. Evil, if, if that's true, that good and being are the same thing, um, and that all people seek or desire to be and to be most fully, then evil must be, it must be a lack of being. And, and so... It is corruption, a privation or dearth or lack of something 
that should be there but is not. Evil is thus a lack or absence of being. Evil is thus a lack or absence of being. It is a deficiency, a corruption, a deficit of something that should be there but isn't. Okay, so I think we've established that. Let's move on. So if we accept this definition, we must apply it to the mentally disordered individual who is missing the most basic of human emotions, and that would be primarily empathy, but also compassion, regret, remorse, guilt, accountability, fear, respect, intimacy, and yes, even even love. There is a deficit of emotion in the disordered individual. We're talking about these ones with personality disorders, cluster B, the narcissist, the sociopath, and the psychopath. They don't have these emotions, and it renders them incapable of functioning as regular people do. They spend their lives reflecting what others show them, consuming the energy and light from vulnerable humans who do possess the ability to experience this full swath of emotion and cycle through supplies of fuel to fill their empty souls. Let's think about that. You know, I know that my, um, my ex-husband, he, uh, he didn't just mirror me. He assimilated my characteristics, my traits. I had, um, I may have attachment disorders and people addiction and abandonment issues and things like that. Yes, granted, I do. I do have these things I'm working on. But I also had a firm sense of self. I knew what was right and wrong, um, even to the point of being, well, having a very strong moral compass. uh, And I felt that I could impart that to him because he had none. And one of my goals was to show him, teach him and grow him into a person who uh, could be a moral person. Cause I thought, well, he just never experienced that. He was never taught that he has no idea what it is. But once I show him, tell him and model that for him, he will be that he will understand it and he will adapt to it and live by it. And even right up until the end or at the end, he said, I do not believe in your moral constructs. I don't believe there is a right or a wrong. It's all whatever we want it to be. I don't believe there's good and bad. That's also just a matter of perspective and relativity. I I don't believe in God. I don't believe in any of the things that you do like that. And, but, you know, while he was saying that I was looking at at him and just thinking about how in the past 16 years that we were together, he was using my words, my philosophical uh, arguments. He was flipping them and using them on me, but arguing the devil's advocate, the other side. It's like he took the opposite of what I wanted to instill in him and flipped it and then used it against me. The words, his posture, his appearance, everything about him, 
he had assimilated that from me. He had absorbed it and claimed it as his own. He took it from me. Uh, and, you know, I willingly gave it. Again, you know, I wanted to champion this individual's moral development. It's like I wanted to help him grow into that. It's like I found a feral creature in the wilderness, and I wanted to grow him into a real human uh, so he wouldn't just be Pinocchio anymore. You know, I wanted to, um, yeah, I always loved a project. I had my reasons for choosing people who had mental impairments and thinking that I'm going to fix them. I'm going to heal them. Flashback to my mother who was profoundly mentally ill. So it's been a life mission for me, this recapitulation or this pattern of trying to uh, heal the, the, the sick and trying to uh, um, imprint upon them some uh, moral imperative to be a good person when, um, you know, that's not always possible um, because there exists this moral deficiency in these dysregulated individuals. Um, And they possess no real grasp of good and evil or right and wrong. Moral evil, moral evil, is primarily about a disordered will. For only a being with intellect and will is a moral agent capable of of being responsible and choosing free will. A person who commits moral evil is evil, and only moral agents can be evil. It's also parasitic, just by the way, and it and its host is oftentimes, you know, the one that is that the narcissist is drawing their fuel and supply from. You know, and what is fuel and supply? It's admiration, attention. Um, you just adore them. They can do no wrong. You tell them constantly, "You're so handsome," and "You're the best." This, you're the best that, and this is the most amazing. This, that, and the other, and you're just all that and a bag of chips and a Snicker bar. You know, just the fascizzle, you know, all of it. Just so awesome. So, um, okay, so let's have more heavy thoughts here. We are what we choose. And these choices define our character. We are what we do. What are we, we are our actions. And these actions um, define our character. Nothing belongs to us more than our character, which is determined by our free and self-determined will and our choices, the things that we do. Since evil is a deficit, deficit or a deficiency, it's poverty, it's a kind of non-being or nothingness, the more one makes morally evil choices, the less one becomes. Do you see that? It's, 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 um, It's a consequence of making bad moral choices. You become less. This is how the personality disordered individual navigates through life. A series of morally deficient choices that benefit themselves only and are not tempered with mercy, compassion, or care for the harm that they cause to others. You know, in the end, what my husband did to me Suddenly, out of the blue, out of nowhere, after for 16 years telling me that we were soulmates, love of his life, he was never going to leave. And to trust him, he was always going to be there for me. I was his little 
little honey sugar pear bear, you know, and all that stuff. And then just boom, one day, uh, okay, I'm done. I want to go. I don't believe in your moral constructs. I don't believe in your sexual ethics. I believe that we can just go out and do what we want with who we want, when we want, whatever we feel like. And I don't want to be just uh, stuck with just you anymore. I don't want to take care of you, he said. I don't want to be here and watch you get old and die. I want to go have fun, do what I want to do, leave my life, do what's best for me. And I remember sitting there in shock that, that my husband was saying this to me. You know, a couple of days before, he was hugging me, you know, telling me he, how much he loved me and how awesome and how we were going to have this great future and move away and and um, find better, better, you know, greener pastures, whatever, you know. It's like all these promises and all, no sign, no clue of what he was doing. Well, you know what? He had no mercy. He knew he was absolutely annihilating me. No mercy, no compassion, no empathy, no care for the harm that he was doing to me. None, not any. Uh, and that's when I suddenly, you know, our therapist said, he's got a personality disorder. This is not going to end well. And I was like, I got this, you know, I got this. I, I can fix this. Uh, I can heal him. It's not that bad. And at that time, I did not have a deep understanding of what Cluster B was, you know. It was a chapter. It was a couple of chapters in my psychology abnormal psych book or whatever in college. And we never spent a lot of time. I, I took a lot of psychology guidance and counseling courses. We didn't really talk about narcissism. Not really, no. Uh, and so I really didn't know what she was talking about. I know now, 13 months later, but I didn't know then. So I was very dismissive and I minimized it and just said, no, nah, yeah, I got this. Um, but it just kind of hit me right in the face when he was doing this. I remembered her saying, you need an exit strategy. This will end badly. And I was just sitting there thinking, oh, my God, this is it. This is happening. She was right. I should have believed her. Not that it would have made any difference. You know, I had that whole addicted brain chemical thing happening. And it was like, I'm a junkie and he's heroin. And I don't know if I could have gotten away, even if I had fully understood it or believed her. I, I, I doubt that I could have escaped. Um, I was too addicted and too weak. But anyway, now that we have established that it's through free will and choices that that um, that go alongside moral bankruptcy and, and this penury, this poverty uh, of morality, it's easy to conclude that people with these cluster B personality disorders have willfully chosen things that would make them evil by definition. So we're not talking so much evil as in Satan at this point. We're talking philosophically evil. But now I want to segue into the other. The next question that comes into play is whether this disordered person is truly responsible for the condition of their soul 
or their lack of morality, or if they have a disordered brain that prevents them from acting otherwise. It's kind of like that serial killer who's mentally ill and schizophrenic. Is that schizophrenic person responsible for murdering all the people they murder? Or, you know, are they so mentally ill they can't really be held culpable or accountable because they were hearing demons coming out of these people and, and they were hearing voices and having hallucinations and, um, you know, that's a tricky business, isn't it? To ask this question about the, the narcissist, if, you know, if a murderer pleads insanity, they receive mercy from the courts, right? If they can be proven that they're have insanity, perhaps the narcissist, sociopath and psychopath, fall into that group and they're categorically mental, mentally impaired. So there have been people who have talked about egotism and how it leads to petty choices and paves the way to moral atrophy. I love that, right? Moral atrophy, grandiosity, entitlement, magical thinking and other characteristics of the narcissist and psychopath. And these are very common, almost always present. They show that their privilege and perceived power, this um, Ubermensch, remember that Hitler's Ubermensch supersedes any moral obligation to others. I remember when I first met my husband, he was so fascinated with Hitler and was reading that kind of stuff. And I was like, why do you want to read about that? Hitler's so horrible. That's awful stuff. Man, I think he was like, like really using that as like learning some Machiavellian kind of like crazy uh, grandiosity type ideas from, from that. The deeply deprived, depraved, the deeply depraved, mentally impaired narcissist has created a void, a nothingness in the heart of their character. And, the, and he desperately needs to be convinced of his own existence because there's nothing in there, right? It's a, it's a void an emptiness. Um, so they need to feel that they exist. And since he's not able to achieve this through the pursuit of virtue, he will do so through the affirmation, praise and adoration from other people. Hence, the narcissist creates the false self, the shadow self, and mirrors the human qualities of others as if they are his own because they're empty, they're devoid, they're just, there's nothingness. Uh, it's a lack of being, a lack of, of being. Essentially, this behavior is not principled. And as a consequence, he has contempt and hatred for any individual or institution, for example, the church, that possesses consistent ethics because it exposes his own inconsistent and arbitrary lack of ethics or morals and reminds him of his own self-deception and false self. Oddly enough, most narcissists and psychopaths actually believe their own lies and they believe their false constructs and, and they, they, they make that real. And I think that that's why in the end, and all along, I felt kind of a resistance and pushback to the whole moral, ethical 
thing that I was trying to uh, impart to my husband. And, and, you know, if it sounds like I was parenting him, I guess I sort of was, you know, he was younger than me and I felt he was still malleable and morally hungry, needing guidance in, in that way. And so I was more than happy to, to serve in that capacity. My first husband raised me. He was older. Uh, you know, my first husband was older and he was smarter and wiser and he's the first person my first husband is the first one who turned me on to philosophy and psychology and had me reading Eric Byrne and Claude Steiner and, and all the different, you know, philosophers and stuff. You know, when I was like 18, 19 years old, I was doing that with him. And, you know, he was uh, a chunk older than me and he was lighting, you know, had the torch and was lighting the way and really turned on my mind and um, activated my soul and my spirit and, and in many ways sort of raised me. So it's not too weird to think that, you know, I went older and I had a person kind of parent me in that sense and that I'm doing the same thing to, you know, my second husband who was the narcissist who was younger. So, yeah, I kind of understand how, how those, that, that, those dynamics did ha- have some um impactfulness on the outcome of all this but not really i mean it wouldn't have mattered how old any of us were in any of these situations um because of the mental health issues that was the that was the that was the only thing that mattered that's the biggie that that's the thing that we all need to be aware of when you're dealing with these mental health issues you know sometimes there's no cure some you know a lot of these things like narcissism, you can't fix them. They're not going to change. They can't. It's just not in there. You're trying to get them to grow something on concrete and thin air. You know, you at least have to have water as a conduit. If you're going to do hydroponics, you have to have at least something to put root for this thing you're trying to grow. And there's nothing there with the narcissist and sociopath and psychopath. And accepting that is rough. Man, that is rough to admit that and accept that, to see that. It's, it's tragic. So, okay, so what does this all have to do with the idea that people with personality disorders could be magnets for some kind of demonic shenanigans, <laughs> right? Demonic shenanigans. So some will say that evil, like, Character disorders, profound moral depravity, psychopathy, sociopathy, pathological narcissism, and all of this are open doors to dark entities. They believe that personality disorders are not just a physical and mental problem, but a spiritual one. The word demon could be used in a metaphorical sense for some people, but right now I'm talking about actual supernatural beings actual entities, actual things associated with evil, prevalent historically sort of in religion, in the occult, in literature, you know, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, demons, um, Mephistopheles, you know, all the those guys. So Jezebel uh, was the wicked queen and wife to evil King Ahab. She's known for murder, inequity, sexual promiscuity, the spiritual components of personality disordered individuals. 
are the spirits of Jezebel and the spirit of Leviathan, uh, which is in the book of Job. And there's reference to um, Jezebel in, in Kings and in also, again, in Revelation. Um, so the Jezebel spirit can be best defined as a disposition of or a demonic influence that causes uh, problems through cunning, deception, and seduction. Um, and there, you know, think about this. There could be a hierarchy of evil spirits. Um, you know, a lot of you believe in angelic ranks, angels, and you pray to saints and stuff like that. And I think hell is just borrowing on some similar heavenly uh, hierarchy, some heavenly model. Uh, like in Dante's Inferno with all the different levels of hell, it's kind of the, think of it that way. So um, there's been a common theory that demonic Luciferian influences target those with weaknesses such as mental illness, and they're attracted to emotions um, uh, emotions that are um, to like, like they have. Um, it makes them easy prey for dark things to move in and set up and spread like a viral contagion, like, like COVID. <sighs> the process to expunge the entity that dwells within, well, you have to forgive those that wronged you in the first place, that created the trauma that caused you to shut down and turn off and die inside and wither away and atrophy until you are a narcissist. Um, you have to forgive them and, uh, you know, because whatever they did to you was so horrible that you had to have dissociation and create this whole false self just for survival. The next step is to invite some divine power greater than you to intercede on your behalf, to remove these demonic squatters who may have set up camp inside. So if the disordered person is unwilling or unable to do those things with true conviction, then their chances of intervention are just slim to none. They're, how can these things come out of them when they, when they don't cooperate with, with all of that? It's like a catch-22 situation. They're too damaged to get the help they need, but if they don't get the help they need, they remain damaged. So I believe in God. And believing in Lucifer and demonic agents come with that territory. You can't really have one without the other, right? Yin and yang. You've got to have good and bad, dark and light. I don't pretend to know the logistics of it all, and I'm far from a biblical scholar. But I do know this. The forces of good and evil are alive and well now more than ever, and they're engaged in a, with a battle in a battle for our souls. Um, so a lot of people think that you can do things to, to deal with this. You know, I, I don't think so. I've had experiences with this stuff. I've had God help me to try to get things out of people. I, I have an, ex, um, I'll tell you about it some other time about, uh, something that I did for my husband when we were in San Antonio at his grandma's house one time and something happened there that, you know, of course I believe in these things. And 
you know, my husband had energetic abilities that transcended what most people possess. Um, we experienced something supernatural, uh, a phenomenon uh, that was like a when we very first met, like in the first couple of months, um, it was a vibration, like an electrical current or a giant electrical toothbrush or something that just shook us when we touched each other. This had nothing to do with sex. This was just was something else, and it was powerful, and it was crazy. And I could never explain it and felt silly trying to describe it. But now, after discovering that he has NPD uh, and maybe other things too, I have to think that these energetic powers might have come from a dark place. I don't know that. I don't know that. But what if, what if that's what that was? What if it opened him up? He thinks he's a wizard. He does magic and all of this manifestation. And he said... He's told me I'm an ascended master. Uh, he's blatantly rejected God and denounced him in the last couple of years. So, uh, yeah, it could be something really bad. I've wanted to help him and cast out his demons and remove these Luciferian influences. But I think it, here's the thing. I think it requires his participation and cooperation. And I have neither. He's made his choice. And while I feel that it may not be fair that he has to choose to live and die by these dark impulses because of some profound mental impairment, it, it remains out of my control, out of my reach. So here's a final thought I want to leave you with. This summer, 2020, is a summer of death and destruction with this summer of 2020 is a summer of, of death and destruction because of things like COVID, all of the riots and protests and police shootings and uh, the Trump sending in the, the whatever you want to call the Gestapo, you know, to quell the protest and in the cities and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, it's a time of craziness. Um, it's a time of destruction and transformation and change. So, uh, I just want to say, I see a connection. I see a connection between what I'm recovering from and what our society is recovering from. Sure. My, my husband may be my ex-husband may be possessed by some evil entity. And isn't that what a lack of being and this whole nihilistic surrender are all about? Yeah, that's true. And he's been gone now for over a year. I want him to be healed from his dark passenger. Yeah, I've watched a lot of Dexter lately. Uh, I don't know how God works. And I just know I have to trust him. And I have to deal with, with things his way and his time, and I should just let things be. Recovering from a relationship with this disordered person who could be possessed, it's like the demons use the narcissist as a conduit to get through to get to you. Your sadness and grief and suffering make the person with a broken heart a prime target. You're weak, you're vulnerable, and you can be infected through contact, like guilt by association. 
um, it's it's a terrible um, terrible time. Let me just say that for um, a lot of different um, reasons, you know, because it's let's see how do I want to end this by telling you what it's a time of transformation for me, like it's a time of transformation for our society that we're in something's happening here guys um something's happening and and there's evil afoot you 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 can't think you can't believe that it's not um you know recovery from this type of trauma and abuse you're having to re you're having to go through changes and transformation to be better and um and you're just, you know, I think <laughs> Mother Jones once said, pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living. So if you love a personality disorder person, you have to do a little bit of both. Right? And, and you know, we can love them, but we can't help them. We can only help ourselves. We have to remember that our first responsibility is to helping ourselves and that this evil is something that we have no control over. I've read a lot of things about how to uh, do an exorcism, and can I do it remotely from a distance? Can I recruit some kind of priest or healer of some kind to sit with me and remotely from a distance expel whatever dark forces are in him? But here's the thing to think about even if I did that and was successful the narcissistic personality disorder that we've just talked about all this heavy stuff about philosophically there is an emptiness and a void within that he's had to fill with something and this lack of being has has created a need to have this false being to put in that place. Remember this whole thing from the beginning of this podcast. So even if, even if you managed, and I don't think you can, but if you, even if you could get the evil demonic influences, entities, whatever you want to call them, if you could get them out, considering the fact that they have this, what could be defined as evil, because evil is a lack of being a lack of will a lack of making moral choices and they have that deficit. So if you take the evil out, isn't it just going to come back? Isn't it just going to come back? And don't they have to participate by saying, yes, take it out of me. Yes. I want to have this entity removed from me. I want to be well. I want to get well. I think, they kind of have to say that or choose that. You can't do this behind their back to them without their participation. So I could assemble an exorcist, a priest, a healing team of energy workers and alchemists or whatever. We could all do our spell casting, breaking, whatever to try to, you know, get the Holy ghost to come in him and remove all this bad, bad juju. But there's something at their core that is so fundamentally absent 
something has to fill that space. And unfortunately, what is filling the space of the narcissist is a false self, a false reality of illusion, delusions, grandiosity, entitlement, um, magical thinking, crazy shit. And that's still going to be there even if the, if they, assuming they do have demons and assuming you are able to get them out, they're still going to have that fundamental core problem. And isn't that just going to invite more things to come back in repeatedly and it's going to be an endless revolving door of demonic things? So guys, even if you don't even believe in the demonic things, accept this, accept this. The narcissist is so deeply absent in the most fundamental and core human ways. All you can do is pray for them and get away and stay away. You know, they have that saying, if you know, you go. And you get away, you stay away. I am having a hard time doing that because my narcissist is my heroine. And I'm a, I'm a junkie and I'm an addict and I'm dealing with it every day. I want to share one last thing with you. I want to share um, uh, a, something that I read. It's from a person who, um, he's a contributor on Quora. And he says, you know, the question was, what are the long-term psychological effects of having a narcissist partner? And his answer set is that it's addiction recovery. He says, I'm fine for weeks, and then my brain heads down that familiar path of asking some internal figure for a hit of that high-grade, uncut, Colombian acceptance and self-confidence, but there's nobody in there to ask. I catch myself and then I override it with, you know, the rumination with other things. He says, I've crushed that rut, you know, ruts in the brain, neural pathways of addiction. The rut is a neural pathway of addiction. I have crushed that rut in every which way driving wagons and trucks over it in all directions for years. I have enjoyed other things in my life, but still, no matter what, the ugly rut remains, leading to a burned-out church where I used to worship nothing, convinced that it was something. Wow, I, that really resonated with me. That's what I'm doing. For all these years, I've been running trucks and heavy equipment back and forth over these ruts, trying to pretend that they weren't there, trying to pretend that this was an addiction and that everything was normal with my husband. And now that he's gone, I'm frantically trying to cover that rut, to heal that neural pathway, to stop my brain from going in that addictive direction because it leads to a burned out church where I used to worship nothing. That was my narcissist husband. I was worshiping him. I was worshiping nothing 
because there was nothing there. His core, his fundamental human soul is, is, is dead. It died when he was little. It died from what horrible things happened from his shame and from his humiliation and from his fear and from his grief and from his anger, from all of, from his desire to survive. He, he had to kill it. He had to murder it. And there's nothing there. There's nothing there. It's not real. All this fabrication, all this stuff that he sucks from other people, from me, the things he took from me to try to claim as his own. It's, it's tragic. It's pathetic. It's heartbreaking. I wanted him to be whole and healthy and healed. He wants to be feeling whole and healthy and healed. He's convincing himself every moment that he's getting it right. But there's nothing in there and it will never be full. And that church where I used to worship, I was worshiping nothing and I was convinced it was something. And those words really, really stuck with me because it's truth, guys. That That is the truth, uh, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And we're going to have to live and die by that, knowing what is happening here. Sorry we went, we went a little long today, but this was a lot to cover. Maybe you need to listen to it again. It's important to grasp this, visualize it, own it, make it real, make it your truth. Because I promise you, with every narcissist, what I'm saying, it's going to be the same. Philosophically, religiously, psychologically, all of it. It's, it's for real. Okay. Whew, that was heavy. So, um, yeah, let's go have a treat. Uh, I'm thinking uh, chips, cookies. I don't know. Maybe a celery stick. Um, <laughs> okay. So stay strong, troopers and soldier on. Much love to all of you and uh, be well. Bye-bye.